Hey everybody, welcome to Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. I'm your host Jason Hobbs, and today I have finally got back a couple guys that everyone's been waiting for. It's Eric and Jose, and this is Hex Talk. Hex Talk. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I had I oh. had more prepared, but I lost my index card. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. I understand. That happens to me all the time. All right. So, uh, like I say, it's been a while since you guys have been on the show. And uh, what's been going on with you guys, man? Eric, what have you been doing? Unfortunately, nothing too fun. Haven't been playing too many games. Been traveling a lot for work. Uh, Jose and I have been playing MechWarrior Online and advancing through the ranks there. And look at, learn, looking and look back on how, how bad we were when we started and... Um, and uh, playing that uh, a couple of times a week during um, during approved work breaks. Yes, that's right. Usually during lunch. <laughs> oh shit! All right, Jose, what about you? You been doing any gaming? Very little. I've uh, I've been doing some reading on Stars Without Number. Their Kickstarter is about to close. I'm excited about that. Uh, and I've been playing the fifth edition uh, Isle of Dread campaign biweekly during this time. And again, uh, Mech Warrior Online, trying to bring up my trash kill death ratio. <laughs> That's why I stopped playing with you guys because I was not getting better. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, for me, I've been playing my Good Intentions game. I've ran it for two different groups now, multiple sessions, and uh, everyone really seems to be having a good time. Uh, I don't really remember if I've talked about it too much online, but it borrows heavily from um, uh, Stormlord Publishing's Black Powder, Black Magic, and uh, the DCC chassis that it's on, as well as my friend Craig Brasco's non-published game, Above Snakes. Um, have either of you guys read anything about it so far, or no? What, Good Intentions? Yeah. Uh, I have not, but I'm excited to try it soon. Oh, good. That'll be nice. What about you, Eric? Yeah, I've read. Well, we've talked about it a lot as you're developing it, and um, you've sent me some stuff I, I've perused. Uh, I'm quite pleased that it borrows nothing from Dark Trails, personally. <laughs> uh, uh, Eric's. We'll give a shout out to some of my playtesters. Eric's brother Kurt Hoffman has actually played, and uh, he was having a good time as far as I knew until he fell asleep. Uh, <laughs> the guy can fall asleep at our, he's like it's getting late i'm getting tired he's like okay that's cool we'll just call it now hey you guys is there anything you wanted to say <laughs> he was like out just sitting you there call it now he took you literally <laughs> yeah and then like we're talking him me frank and uh neil we're talking and then he just starts back in the con oh i really thought this was cool and I, he just out and woke up and like he could hear the whole conversation while he was sleeping it was crazy <laughs> Uh, but I'll be putting more information about that up on, on the blog and such as things go on. All right. I guess we should do some uh, any congratulations. I think that's what people do on podcasts. Uh, congratulations to all the any winners. It was nice to see uh, OSR to be so successful. Right, Jose? I agree. I uh, always want to see OSR uh, doing well at awards. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, it's great. Uh, there was a long time where it was just assumed that nothing in the osr community had a shot uh at the ennies and that definitely i, I don't really i don't follow it I, and i was actually surprised i didn't even know a lot of these people had submitted or were in the finalist because I, I don't really follow it and then i just saw the in the hangout or google plus the streams of as the awards were happening um so that's pretty cool that there's that much uh influence i guess um uh, of the osr in a you know i guess the only really major rpg gaming awards yeah, as far as we can tell anyway, right? Uh, anyway, uh, 
That was awesome, and uh, some of the stuff's unfortunate with the way some of the winners are being treated by the so-called gatekeepers that aren't OSR people, but uh, it kind of happens both ways, so I'm not going to comment a whole lot about that. Well, don't forget that people are babies, so. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to comment on that either. <laughs> let's talk about uh, let's talk about Hex Talk. I mean, that's what we're here for, so we promised last time in uh, hex talk three that we were going to try and give some tips and tricks about running random encounter or running hex crawls and um, uh, some advice about West marches. So uh, on that note, Eric Talvola, a patron and uh, obviously a listener uh, sent in an email. So I guess we're going to do an email quick. Uh, just finished hex talk three on random tables. One part of random tables. I'm curious on your opinion on is whether you replace items and tables once defeated or put in alternate items. For example, in the purple worm example, it's rare, but would you treat it as unique so when it's defeated, it's replaced by something else? Or maybe in this part of the world, there are a few so they can keep being encountered. Maybe it's more of a question of how often you update the random tables. Anyway, great job with the podcast, except Jose. No, I'm just kidding about the Jose part. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eric, what do, you th- what do you think about Eric's email? So, yes is the answer. You can do either or any, right? Uh, I've certainly had uh, named creatures as part of an encounter table in in um, on a hex sandbox. I think that's great. I think it uh, builds its world building, right? Um, everyone knows that you know, Brace Girdle, the Black Dragon, lives in the Cradle Wood, right, or whatever, and um, that can be uh, an entire adventure, right, with with no work on the GM's part. Just you know, that's a known rumor. People talk about it in town and. You drop something like that to a bunch of players, and they can go off, and you could have days of uh, gameplay of just rolling on the random tables until Brace Girdle comes up, right? And uh, that's their goal, right? And they're going to enjoy that, and it's going to be a direction for the campaign. And if he's killed, then you can replace it. Or, you know, another thing you can do is most dragons wouldn't fight to the death if they could get away. So he goes and now he starts living someplace else and the players have an enemy. And, you know, a couple sessions later they find out that he, he moved to another area and that gives them something else to go after. And, and they know that he's after him or even better yet now put him on all the other encounter tables because he has a vendetta and there's a chance he could be encountered anywhere specifically looking for the players. So there you go. That's like eight nights of gaming off of one, one slot of a random encounter table, and that's really the core of hex crawls and sandbox play in general. The stuff like that happens where you don't get that in a scripted story arc type of campaign. Yeah, very rarely. What do you think, Jose? Uh, I agree. You can you can handle it any way that's appropriate for your setting and for that particular area. Specifically about the purple worm, if you want more purple worms there, then yes, there's more purple worms, or perhaps you come up with a. Uh, an alternative to a, a full-size purple worm, and you come up with an immature purple worm that you write up that's smaller, and it's uh, or even eggs, uh, so that you can keep it going. Or you uh, you write in a separate, you write in something different. Once you either say you know no encounter, or uh, purple worm tunnels. Uh, so whatever whatever feels appropriate. Um, that's you know that's for each uh, GM to decide at that point. But yeah, any of the things that he recommended would work well. Yeah, specifically for the purple worm, where you know, we were talking about Iron Thew's approach and that very specific random table. I mean, if you kill that purple worm, then like almost kind of like it can just lead to way more types of stories. Or if you don't kill him, it can, just like Eric said. Here's one option too. Let's say you want to say the purple worm um, feeds on ankegs. 
which is, you know, kind of like that ant line that lives underground. If you kill the purple worm, maybe you replace it, it and another location on your table with ant kegs to say the purple worm was keeping that population down. Now you've got an ant keg explosion and the population is changing because you have, you've affected the world in that, in that case. So another way to do it. That's exactly what I was leading to. And also, I mean, uh, we did briefly say something about shifting your encounter tables in the last episode. Uh, whereas if the, if, you know, become more civilized because the purple worm's gone, then it can, uh, affect things in that manner. So what are we on to now? Pre-written encounters? You want to talk about that, Eric? Yeah, so uh, I know we talked a lot about monster encounters, and the, and the example we gave had monsters and hazards. But another thing that you can do is have a uh, – on your encounter table, one of the results can be uh, a whole encounter, right? Whether that's a small dungeon, a five-page dungeon. So in the example we just gave, uh, you roll the purple worm. Maybe that's not a combat encounter. Maybe you just in the distance you see the purple worm come out of the ground and then go back in. And if you explore it, the hole it left, like, oh there's a small dungeon there or maybe just an encounter right um that you've written up ahead of time and it's a little more than just a fight or flee type of situation and you can use that for instance if you're you're in a pickup game you don't don't really have anything planned the players are kind of meandering and they're in that you can just just open that up it doesn't have to be rolled you can say all right you see the purple worm so you basically have what it amounts to is ready-made content that is then you're ready to start playing whenever or wherever within the regions where it can happen and it's great for slowing players down if they're going someplace you don't have prepared yet or if you don't have if they don't have a real clear objective for for the session you can do something like that and so really putting pre-written encounters in as opposed to just fights or or situations with monsters it's another kind of the the prep work that you can do for a hex crawl that isn't wasted because it's modular. You can use it whenever, whenever you want. Jose. Uh, I like that too. Um, especially, uh, specifically tying it back to my previous example. If you wanted a situation where the purple worm is, is feeding on some sort of large, some other large dangerous predator, you can have pre-written encounters like, like Eric mentioned, where you see the purple worm in the distance killing an ankeg or killing another large predator or you have an encounter where you see the results of it predating on one of those creatures so that you can draw the players can draw a correlation between the purple worm and this other creature so that later on if they kill the purple worm and they start encountering these creatures alive they can draw the conclusion well crap we killed the worm now these ankegs are everywhere what do we do Perhaps they have to go to another region and get a purple worm egg or an adolescent purple worm and bring it back to fix the <laughs> to fix the problem. So, I mean, players are crazy. They might come up with that. So if you have purple worms in another area, that might be a plan. So tying that all together and giving them those encounters specifically to put those seeds in their heads might lead to some really entertaining uh, role play. That's great. We must fix the ecosystem. Yeah. Introduce the non-native <laughs> predator to the ecosystem. Yeah, that's fantastic. We must fix the ecosystem. Hey, yeah, that's Captain Planet. He's <laughs> right. Way back Give out five rooms. Launch Tom uh, Cruise's career. <laughs> uh, well, boy. All right, so I think that's true. I mean, I, I use it a lot. Uh, and, you, and a lot of times if someone goes to a new area in my game, which – come out obviously i'll roll on the encounter table just to see if something's going on or if they go in and i don't eric mentioned slowing the players down 
And it's not really railroading them because uh, they're still doing what they want to do and you're rolling on the table and then it may create an encounter which you can feed off of uh, to give you some more information uh, what might be happening if you don't actually have a pre-written encounter there and it kind of needs one. Like, okay, we're traveling. To, they decide to pick up on some rumor. Like one of my big problems is, is I always uh, initiate uh, a rumor or someone says something about it in town and immediately whatever we were planning to do for the night goes out the wall. And all they want to do is go do that. Oh, a ship crashed and there were tax collectors on it. We're going there right now. And I was thinking, oh, that was supposed to be a forward. So, that was going to happen in a couple sessions maybe, but no, now they're doing it right now. So I have to do something to give them something to do on the way. And a lot of time I'll use the encounter tables to do that, uh, which is kind of leading me on to another trick that we kind of, I think we might have briefly mentioned is when you roll doubles on your encounter table, uh, those whatever creatures that you get are interacting with each other. And you can have another table to say what kind of interaction that is. Uh, and I've really found that can really expand the emergent storytelling, which is what we're talking about here. All these ways of telling stories without, you may have a pre-written encounter, but it doesn't give you an overall feeling of what the campaign is uh, because that story plays out during play. What do you think, Jose? I mean, you haven't really ran a hex crawl that I know of too much, but you play in all of them. So what do you think about that? I think it's a really good idea. And I think, I think another neat idea for this, especially playing off Eric's previous example of the black dragon is you could have predetermined random encounters. And what I mean by that is for a region area, let's say, you know, the area is very dangerous. There's a black dragon there, giant spiders, extremely dangerous for any party. You can have a predetermined random encounter so that the first time the characters go there and they get a random encounter, you know which encounter they're getting. They're seeing the dragon in the distance feeding on these massive spiders. So that their first encounter is not the dragon, not the deadliest spiders in the woods, but an indicator of what's to come next time. So you can use these encounters and maybe, maybe the same thing happens. You, you have two or three to set up, set up information. Again, going back to my purple worm example, maybe you see it in the distance. And then the next encounter, you see it in the distance feeding on ankegs. And then the third encounter is rolled on the encounter table so that you can set up these foreshadowing events to give players information about regional areas or about situations and then move on to using your encounter tables for the rest of the situation. So I think that's another idea you can use where you wait for a random encounter roll, but then use a specific encounter before you start using your tables. Yeah, that brings up two thoughts. To me, one being by uh, doing that foreshadowing, you can actually help prepare the adventuring party, the players, for that situation. So, oh, shit, now we got to go get our dragon fighting stuff. or Yeah, or if we they see an undead or they see a situation which leads them to believe it's undead, they hire a cleric or they get holy water. Yeah, it's a, it's a way to let them, to help them without... You know, saying, hey, we're going to the undead cavern, so be prepared. And if they don't prepare and they get a TPK, you can go, well, you know, there was some foreshadowing. <laughs> should have prepared better. I always need foreshadowing for my TPKs. Otherwise, I don't feel good about myself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's right. You gave them a chance. They didn't take it. I consider foreshadowing a form of weakness. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Klingon GM way. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, so, yeah, you know, all this talk reminds me of, and I guess I, I have put this together before, but it's like, um, basically doing all this, the way we're talking about is a way of creating a, like a procedurally generated computer game, right? And people love those because it's not the same way every time and you never know what you're going to get. And it's 
kind of the same thing here with uh, with pockets of design, right? But it's really the most fun that I ever have with D&D anymore kind of across the board is these things that happen, you know, emergent storytelling as a result of these random tables. And not just like players wanting to golf and do something weird to do something weird. I mean, that's kind of contrived. That used to be fun. Like, I'm going to do something crazy. Like, I'm going to ride the dragon. I mean, that was I went through that phase and came out of it and really don't <laughs> don't want to look back. <laughs> And you get that you get that a fair bit at cons still today is, and I see that that definitely can sometimes it's fun and kitschy and in, like in DCC it works kind of well but there's a there's a lot of folks who do it to try and break the game and when it's done in that spirit it's no fun really um, and you get the same kind of um, reward from this kind of it's kind of like randomness by design and um, I've always had when it happens this way players players latch onto it more you get kind of community buy in instead of just one player kind of taking over the the narrative and doing something crazy just to do something crazy you get kind of uh, complete buy-in because it's everyone surprised including you as the gm which is for me the most fun of playing DD anymore is um you know when you play a game for i don't know i don't give away my age but like 30 years it's like there's not too much new under the sun um you know even in with the osr revolution it's um, some cool new stuff but it's mostly like it's been done before um, so everybody being surprised by what's happening that night is a is a big reason that I still play the game. Oh, nice! I was almost speechless for a second. That was so emotional, Eric. Thank you. That's that's never happened to you. <laughs> that's probably true. It has never happened. All right, so uh, this actually leads pretty well into uh, when we're talking about specific monsters and areas is how you define your regions. Uh, I think we touched on this previously in uh, Hex Talk, but the better defined they are, then the more prepared the the players can be to engage that. And when Eric is talking about how it, uh, how people can become vested in the game, it's, it almost harkens back to the idea of why do we play at all? And, um, for a lot of people, I think it's a social and <laughs> a social encounter with each other really. And at the same time to make stories together. And if the GM isn't using random stuff and playing the game at the same time, he's, and a lot of times all he's doing is, reading to the players right that's what we talk about railroads so uh i guess all we're doing is emphasizing the point that we all really like emergent storytelling uh would you agree with that jose i agree with that but um i'm not really i'm playing more to win i'm trying to win the game you know that's that's my goal whenever i play D. i'm always trying to be number one at the game i mean what, why else play so I mean, stories are nice, but unless oh, unless I'm getting a gold star, I mean, what, what, where's the end game? So, ah, shit. Um, have have you have you won yet, Jose? Uh, no, I've never <laughs> won. Again with I haven't been quite playing as long as Eric. Uh, the D- Dungeons and Dragons came out in '75. He said 30 years. You can do that math. Um, uh, but yeah, I've been playing a long time. I've never won. Oh, that's unfortunate. Uh, it makes me feel like I forgot to do everything about you, but. That's that's and, okay. and you've killed plenty of my characters. You should know that I've never won. <laughs> I, I am aware. <laughs> All right, so uh, some more advice. Uh, it looks like we got uh, pockets of danger and treasure, which is a pretty uh, exotic way of saying what, Eric? You know, this is in West. Did we say we're doing West March's advice? Yeah, then? kind of. Yeah, because yeah. did we even hit clearly defined regions? Did yeah. we really touch on that well I enough? Think I, so. But I got two things to say, right. so I'll go ahead and, and, and say that. 
so in the clearly defined regions, you know, the, the perfect example of that is, although, you know, this is could be also everything about you, is I've never read The Lord of the Rings, so <laughs> I'm the ultimate Ooh. non-nerd nerd, yeah, and I actually tried like nine times. I don't like it, so I'm sure I'll get hate mail for that, and all my friends hate me who I, when I say that. <laughs> but just watching the movies, right, <laughs> specifically the old cartoons, like Mirkwood, right, like everybody knows Mirkwood's bad because, you know, these things live there, and that's... Um, in that book, when they go through, that's what they encounter, right? Now, does other stuff live there? Yeah, probably. But the clearly defining feature of that area is, what is it? It's the spider lives there, right? And then isn't there goblins too? But anyway, just assuming that, right? There's goblins and spiders who live there, and everybody knows that's what lives there. And that's most likely what you're going to encounter. But, you know, there's an off chance that the eagles come and save you, right? But that 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 is a clearly... It, I mean, it stands out in everyone who's read those books' uh. mind as you know a clearly defined region, and um, and it, it evokes right, it evokes feeling in people who like that stuff. But that's what you're going for when you're trying when you're writing your encounter tables for regions, and you know it's okay to have you know in a twenty or nineteen slot encounter table, you know eight of them are some kind of goblin. Now mix them up, right? It's not just goblin, 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 goblin. Maybe it's a goblin war party, a goblin scouting party, the goblin king, you know, visiting his territory, whatever, um, so that it's unique encounters, but the, the theme is the same. And then that way, once that's established in the player's mind, you you then can go back and apply all kinds of like filmmaking rules and book writing rules and break your own rule because when you break your own rule, it makes it more impactful. So you know they've gone through the Mirkwood. Um, hope I don't get sued by the estate there. You know, thirty times and they've always encountered goblins and spiders. The thirty-first time, there's you know, giants. What are giants doing here? It's it's you know. Although I think they live in Mirkwood too. Anyway, I don't know. Again, I didn't read. I didn't read the books. I think there was Ewoks. There Ewoks? <laughs> maybe an maybe an elf. I don't know. There you go. Ewoks are there, and yeah. uh, and so there you go. Right. So that's the oh uh, that's the idea God. with the clearly defined region. So I'll shut up. That was an awesome display of knowledge about Mirkwood. I think there might be some goblins there. I don't. Spiders and goblins. What <laughs> yeah, the fuck? I remember. I remember when the hobbits and Prince of Leia were going through there. I prefaced it by I never read the books. Tom Bombadil dropped down some raps and stuff, and people drank some water and fell. Asleep. See, I don't even know who that is because he wasn't in, in any of the movies. So that person doesn't that person doesn't exist to me. Who's this tall guy <laughs> named Bjorn? I don't know. It's fucking Mirkwood. Uh, <laughs> 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 you got anything to say about clearly defined regions? You want to show off your uh, geek culture knowledge, Jose? Follow, follow that, Jose. <laughs> on, on a map, use a very, very thick, sharp, dark marker, and your regions will be clearly defined. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do that on roll twenty. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You are now entering Mer- uh, Jose's creeping wood. <laughs> I think hex five might be touching back on these sections that we we barely actually hit. So. I guess what are we on pockets of? Tri- I don't know. I want to say Jose's creeping wood again because I think that has. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies. Oh my god, this is crazy. All right, so what do you think we didn't hit on? Tell me, Jose, we can go back. It's good. We'll, we'll be a little erratic today. It's all right. Pockets of danger and treasure. Let's hear about it. I was calling it like the locked door. Uh basically in uh, a West Marches or even any hex crawl really, you can have areas and locations 
that the adventurers are going to have problems getting through because the uh, there might be a guardian that is much too difficult for them, or there may be uh, a door that they can't pick. You know, maybe they need a knock spell, and you know they're all first level, so there's no way they're going to get through this door at this moment. But that's something for them to come back to later, so they can always remember. Oh man, you remember that door in the cursed mounds that we couldn't get through? Finally. Edwin Nagy's Sarah character has a goddamn knock spell. Let's go in there and see what's going on. And that's a, another way to keep players vested in what's happening because they're not just randomly going off to do things. And, and sometimes I feel like I haven't done this well enough in Kalmata because it can get stale when every time before the session it's like, oh, what are we going to do today? Oh, I don't know. Let's not hire Peripi. And that's the best part of the whole campaign. But if, uh, <laughs> if you have these pockets of, uh, of danger and treasure, then it's going to make people want to go back there and to try and figure out ways to go back there. So uh, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, for sure. So I stole directly from Ben Robbins. I think he, I think this was in his Westmarch campaign was the monastery with the abbot's study was locked. And, and in my game, you could actually see it was on a moor um, right across the river from the t- starting town. So on like a clear day, you could actually see this monastery and so it was very close to the town, and the players went and cleared it out. It was a lot of low-level stuff. Coincidentally, um, a, a couple of spiders and goblins. Um, and uh, uh, but there from the Merkwood. But there was uh, on Endor. There was uh, an intact portion of the original monastery that had this locked, magically locked door. And um, when the players cleared out the monastery and then tried to open it, and it had it had like a explosive runes on it, so their thief evaporated into a fine mist of blood, and then they could never get in, and so they kept coming back. I think they lost, and it was mostly one one gal who was playing lost two of the three thieves trying to pick that lock uh, <laughs> before they succeeded, and then they had to get I like you said a magical scroll. I think it was a dispel magic scroll eventually, but so that all happened when some of those characters who were there at first level were now fifth level to cast that third level spell. To, to open it, and then when they got inside, it was a treasure trove of magic items and, you know, appropriate. So it's like these, if you're using the later editions of d which I actually use 3.5 in that game, everybody who has played with, that's the version they liked. It was uh, the CR, if you will, challenge rating for that monastery was 1 to 2, but this particular room was like 5 or 6, and so you can do that with locked rooms, uh, with traps, you can do it with monsters, maybe... There's one really powerful monster that lives in this otherwise low-level um, area. And what that does is it creates, first of all, danger to go through that area, a small amount of danger, even after it's pacified, cleared, or dealt with. Um, and the other thing, too, is it also gives reasons for higher-level characters to still be around and to go back to those areas to finish what they started or to or to finally go into that area that was previously blocked off to them. Nice. Jose? Man, I really loved not hiring Peripy in your games. <laughs> God, I hate that guy. But but regarding um, pockets of danger and treasure, yeah, it's a good idea. All of those are good ideas. And it also allows you to, again, give legs to an area that they may have otherwise explored. And it gives them a reason to go back. And you don't even have to have that area fully prepared yet. You can just have that door there. Let's say you you had that dungeon ready, and in your mind it was for first or second level characters, and you just stuck that door there that can't be picked. It's magically locked. It needs a knock spell. You know when characters get to third level, they might want to come back there. You can you can have that ready, and then you can restock that dungeon, and it you can have legs in that map that you spent all that time in. 
or you could have an area they've explored and part of it is is uh, protected by a golem that can only be affected by magical weapons. You control when they get magical weapons, so you can control when they're able to go back there and deal with that situation, so you can control when when it's time for them to go back. You give them those weapons, it might get in their mind that now they can go back there, you have the rest of that area ready and prepared and maybe different areas restocked. And the thing about it is, if you decide to never use it, you never have to prepare that area. They go back with that knock spell. They open it up. It's just a small room with a modest amount of treasure. Give them something for going there and remembering that. But you don't have to prepare it if you don't need it. So it gives you a lot of options in your kit. Yeah. You can also like put a treasure map in there that leads to something else. So not exactly like going back to another hex talk where we talked about a key to get into another place. Maybe that's where the key is finally. So yeah, it gives you a neat idea. All right. So, uh, Eric has something here on my very scripted uh, podcast here. So, Eric, rewards for merely exploring. What do we think about that? I know in my game I'm actually giving experience points when you uh, explore a new hex or find a, no, a new uh, location of interest, basically. Uh, what are you talking about? Yeah, pretty much that. So especially if you're running an, an, an old-school game that primarily rewards experience for gold gathered, uh, that's great, but in a West March specifically, the the idea is that it's not points of light, it's a point of light and then darkness beyond. And so what's the point of going out into the darkness and there's got to be a reason to go to the next region? And it's really kind of hard to work into those kind of games rumors like outside of the immediate areas because the whole idea is it's, it's a vast wilderness. Nobody knows what's out there. Uh, or any rumors there are are ancient, ancient, right? There's nobody who's like hanging out out there like – uh, to, to tell you what's going on. So you got to figure it out yourself. And so rewarding players for going and exploring and just exploring, right? In, in an OSR game, you've got, you put, you're playing two to four hours for a night. If the player wants to get experience, you know, exploring could take two hours. And then even, even if you find something, now you got to hurry up and get some gold. And, and so rewarding characters for just exploring and, and not a little bit, not just like a little bit, but like a lot of experience for, completely mapping all the hexes in a new region, right? That would be a whole reason to go out there um, to to do that. And enough experience that's meaningful, you know, the equivalent of, of, of getting a large treasure in whatever game system you're using. Yeah, that's a it's a good idea because it is a motivator as well. It's not always a quest giver or a rumor that can create action. If none of that's going on, maybe someone just wants to go see what's beyond the next hex and rewarding players for that is going to propel them to want to do it. So it's a really good idea. Do you have anything to add to that, Jose? I like that idea, especially uh, to give the characters a reason to adventure. I mean, an example, it could be uh, a new lord. You're You're in the keep of a new lord, and he has a decree that... He wants his his new his new uh, land to be mapped the uh, extent of the land, and if you map the entire uh, the entire golden plains, you get he he gives you something, and if you map the entire dark forest and you bring this back to him, you he gives you something. Maybe he ties you land or or whatever it is, and in, and that will give them a reason to go out and explore. And it ties them back to the area and to the region and to NPCs. So yeah, it's it's a really good way to vest the characters in in exploring the map that you've created. Yeah, in my Emergent Empires campaign, when I was running Axe with it, I had a cartographers guild who would they would pay 
adventurers basically not only to explore a region, but they might have heard for a specific thing and sent them out to go do that. So they weren't necessarily getting experience points for exploration, but they were getting gold points, gold pieces from this guy, which equated to experience points, right? So, uh, yeah, cartographers' guilds are a pretty popular way to do that. And then sometimes there's uh, people, there might be ruins in the area that are known to be there, and there's a collector, and he, he, he pays for curios so that that makes people go out and explore and find these ruins and that that drives exploration now all right so i'm actually going to go off the script completely here and uh, bring up something that uh, is near and dear to all of our hearts here what happens when the hex crawl's done i mean you've pretty much explored every region and if not completely explored them but you've kind of moved around and the emergent story has shifted to now like basically a massive army is fortified you know near your starting town and uh what 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 goes on what in a situation like that eric i mean this is completely hypothetical of course but yeah, <laughs> what do you do i mean do you just end the campaign do you just have a big battle i mean what what do you think are some good ideas for people's whose hex crawls or hand sandboxes have started you know get out of the sandbox a little bit what's the next step so clearly the clearly defined next step in this hypothetical situation is to play BattleTech. yes because that's what we did this hypothetical situation is not hypothetical at all so that's exactly what's happening with my hex crawly um game that 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 evolved out of b2 keep on the borderlands that started about gosh we've been running it for is it three three and a half years now yeah i think i think so and it's kind of tapped out so we're trying to figure out what to do next well, you know, there's always the thing is, is depending on the kind of campaign you're running, there's always another region, right? So that's kind of the evolution of the BX. My favorite game system is is basic is all about in the dungeon and then experts the wilderness. So you just tackle in more wilderness, right? You can certainly do that. Um, you can transition the game at higher levels. Typically, hex hex crawly type games or sandboxes lend themselves uh, very easily to becoming domain level campaigns. And what we mean by that is where the original player characters are now the lords and ladies of the realm, and they have domain level things to deal with, like other kingdoms and you know necromancers, uh, undead armies, that kind of stuff. Uh, if they're high enough level, or somehow you know more associated with those things. So, you know, I think the original games they talk about that a lot. Like the original characters grow up and they become the barons, right? And like especially um, Blackmore, Dave Arneson's campaign, and then a whole new crop of characters comes along and. The old player characters are now the guys telling the new player characters what to go do, right? So mm-hmm. whether that's lower-level areas that are no, of no longer of interest to the higher-level characters in the same area or, you know, reach beyond that. I mean, the, the cool thing with – unless you really put some some severe boundaries on your on your hex map, you can always add more hexes. Yeah, I just can't wait for that in our game. Welcome to the court of Lord Douche. <laughs> 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 and I, you know, it's funny that you say that because depending on how this army thing works out, I'm pair. I am just within a hair's breadth of getting my first win in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, so stay tuned. This could be a win. Serious. It might be the first I've ever heard of. So that's actually maybe something we could talk about in the future, even if we don't call it hex talk. We'll see. So uh, briefly, I wanted to mention on in the state of the OSR, I've really been seeing companies and uh, individuals indeterminate popularity in the OSR creating a uh, Slack or discord channels for people to join and basically like almost a rolling hangout or community to talk to each other. What I've found is, is every time I've joined one, there's so much 
goddamn chatter on it. It's just like a bunch of people yelling into the ocean. I mean, or like peeing into the ocean almost really. Every single person has their own agenda and they're saying their own thing and no one can tell because there's no purple in the ocean, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) Eric, you had some information about Slacker and Discord that I didn't know. Do you want to briefly talk about any of that and then maybe let the listeners know what it is if they don't know what it is? Yeah, so um, I'm but no no expert, and I've never seen any of this on the OSR or gaming. But we use Slack like at work, right? It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Google Hangouts or enterprise level, right? Where you can do real world work collaboration, business intelligence, and integration. Drop any file into it and automatically share that, as well as um, you know bring other people into the conversation, create channels, sub channels, that kind of thing. Tankar, Eric Tankar had like tavern chat that I would visit. A while when he first started it, and it was very much like you said, is it seems like everyone's having their own conversation, or there's a couple different conversations, and I just, I'm too old to keep up with that. I'm not, the, the, I guess these young kids can, can, can keep that stuff straight in their head, but I never could figure out who was talking to who about what, and that's kind of the, uh, it sounds like what, what you're talking about. If there's not clearly defined swim lanes of, of exactly <laughs> what the channel's for and why. Yeah, that's one of them is Eric just started a Eric Tenkar, not Eric Hoffman, because I'm sure that one would be way better. I'm just kidding, Tenkar. No, but uh, uh, it's exactly what it is. Eric has his own. Frog Gods have their own. I mean, Misdirected Mark has its own Slack channel. There's a lot of people that have those. So, Jose, I mean, do you have anything to say about it? Or uh, Yeah, for Discord, uh, if, if people don't know, everyone should know. It's basically uh, voice over IP. It's a communal chat, voice chat, and it's got a little... I guess it's got a little text-based messaging as well, but most people use it. For, I've used it a lot for gaming. Uh, I'll, I'll connect to gaming uh, Discord uh, and chat with people I'm playing with. I've never really used it for uh, role-playing because, you know, we have Hangouts or Roll20 or whatever. Um, but I like the idea. I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. Whatever, whatever brings people together to talk about gaming, I, I think I'm for it. So. All right. So, yeah, that's cool. All right. So, um I did want to mention that in last Hex Talk, Jose had a plea for everyone, and it was answered. People like Eric Tavola, uh, Adrian Schauer, uh, Shane Ward, and Gordon Cranford, you know, all sent emails or posts or tweets to talk about Hex Talk and the podcast in general. Mostly, it was just saying how awesome I am, uh, and I appreciate that. <laughs> it. Isn't they're just saying the podcast is great? So, <laughs> and I <laughs> it humble. I mean, I'm totally humbled by that. But uh, anytime you guys can send something in, it's going to enhance the show. So. I really appreciate that. We got some new Patreon shout-outs. Monty Hobbs. There's another Hobbs. He's not the Hobbs because I'm the Hobbs. I'm really kind of not humble today, am I? I'm like all about it. Anyway, thanks, Monty. James Spahn is a new patron and Mark Diamante. If you want to become a patron of Hobbs and Friends of the OSR, go to patreon.com, OSR and Hobbs. How can people reach you, Jose? Uh, they can reach me on Google. I'm I'm on Google. Um, and you know what's nice to know that there's so many other Hobbs out there. If you get uppity, we can replace you with one of the other ones. Uh, he probably thinks so. And Monty is a really good name too. That's a that's a good name for gaming. So we got to keep that in mind, Eric. There you go, Eric. How can uh, fans reach you? Well, I'm disappointed that Jose didn't have some archaic means of communication reference. I was waiting for that. Um, Me too. I'm, I'm extremely disappointed. But uh, Eric Hoffman on Google Plus or StormlordPublishing.com. All right. You can also reach me on the Twitters at Hobbs Indeed or uh, OSR and Hobbs is has its own Twitter feed. 
It's OSRN Hobbs. Um, I'm also on Google Plus, Jason Hobbs, and we have the magnificent uh, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR G Plus community that now has 373 members as of this moment. That's pretty awesome. And uh, I mean, we were only six months old, guys. So it's pretty crazy that uh, that many people are into it and uh, listen to the podcast and want to be involved. And there's a lot of people that are actually just posting their own stuff, like their own blogs or their own campaigns. And people are talking about stuff that, you know, is OSR stuff, but doesn't necessarily even have to do with uh, me or the podcast on the on the community. So, I mean, that's pretty awesome. So I appreciate all the members of the community and anybody else who listens and writes in or whatever. So you guys want to say good day? Good day. Good day. I can't find my cursor. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.